Well, good morning. My name is Jacob Smith. I'm the teaching pastor here at our Southwood campus, and I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, Welcome to the remnant uh, who have persevered through the fall break. Uh, It is great to be with you this morning and to continue uh, our series looking at examining the book of Revelation at this incredible letter that's been given to us by the Lord, these promises and these prophecies regarding the end of days. And as we've been studying this over the course of the fall, and as we'll continue in it over the next few weeks, we're ending up uh, right before Christmas, uh, my hope and, and our prayer really as a church and as a teaching team is that we would be able to recognize that this isn't just future knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but instead God has given us future knowledge in order to change and transform our present understanding that what we know about the things to come would radically alter the way that we live in the here and now. That is, that is really our hope, is that we would recognize just the incredible power that God's promises give us in our current day-to-day lives. And one of the things that we see repeatedly through the book of Revelation that we're going to see especially this morning in chapters 10 and 11. So actually, if you have your Bible, if you want to go there on your phone, we're going to be in Revelations chapter, Revelation chapter 10 and chapter 11. And as we study it, what we're going to see is a these different tensions that God has allowed to, to stay in creation. These tensions that come through his word or around the fact that we uh, find comfort and conviction in his word. The fact that those of us who follow Jesus Christ receive both persecution but also power. The fact that this world that we live in is destined not only for ruin but also for restoration. It's a tension that we see in scripture. It's a tension we see in our lives. And it's a tension that we see in even uh, marketing campaigns. Uh, such as this one right here. First, they're sour, then they're sweet. That's amazing. Sour, sour, sweet. Put on your blindfold, pin the tail of the dog. First, they're sour, then they're sweet. Almost a pony. What a tension. We see this in our lives, right? Not only through candy that's sour than sweet, we see it in work that is hard and yet rewarding. We see it in relationships that are complicated and yet fulfilling. We see this in a world that is broken and yet a God who has promised to make all things new. A God who has promised to redeem those who are lost and, and are, are abandoned and face destruction apart from the movement of his power and his grace. And in Revelation chapter 10 and 11, what we see are three primary tensions that God highlights, that God reveals about our lives in the here and even in the future. We see this tension in the word of God that it brings both conviction and comfort. We see tension in the lives of his witnesses that they receive both persecution and all also power. And we see this in the tension for the world, which faces both ruin and also restoration. And yet in all of these tensions, it's sometimes there are problems that God is meant to solve, but sometimes there are tensions that he allows to exist in our lives because it teaches us dependency and it provides us with hope that God one day is in fact going to make all things right. That even though the here and now is difficult and trying and full of tribulation, that in fact the Lord has given us a greater hope beyond this world, beyond our own ability, and in a way that only he can move. And so we see this first off in Revelation chapter 10. If you'll read with me in verse 1, 
John is recounting uh, this vision that God has given him regarding the future. And, and in Revelation 8 and 9, we read through the seven trumpet judgments, these different judgments that God unveiled after the breaking of the seventh seal of the scroll that only Jesus himself could break and only Jesus could open. As he breaks the seventh seal, it inaugurated these seven trumpets. And as we went through those trumpets, we saw a lot of destruction and devastation on the earth, all this judgment that God was pouring out for the sake of repentance, that God was always, even in his discipline, was providing mercy. God was providing this discipline so that the, re- the, rebellious, uh, the rebellious humanity would turn and that they would run to the Lord. And yet, time and time again, as God is pouring out his judgment, pouring out his wrath, we see humanity just dig in their heels and continue uh, to rebel against him. But there are some, there are some who see his power and see his might and want to run towards him. And so in Revelation chapter 10, John is essentially going to be talking about these events from a slightly different angle. All right, so he starts in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, saying that then I saw another powerful angel descending from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like pillars of fire. And he held in his hand a little scroll that was open, and he put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. So John is given this vision of this mighty, powerful angel. And there's discussion around who is this angel, what exactly, and we don't know, right? There's There's not a lot that we know about this angel other than the fact that he has been sent to deliver this incredible message from the Lord. And what's so significant, I think, about his appearance, not only is it awe-inspiring that he's this, you know, basically like gigantic, uh, this powerful figure, but he's coming with this rainbow around his head. And I don't think we should, we shouldn't miss this, that this is an illusion, much as, you know, we've said in the weeks before how there are plenty of like direct quotations in Revelation from the Old Testament. There are also hundreds of allusions and these kind of callbacks to prophecy and promises that God gave in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And here in Revelation 10, when we see this angel showing up with a rainbow, it reminds us of the beginning of the book, where when John was seeing the throne room of God, God's throne, in fact, was surrounded by a rainbow. And it's an allusion to this promise that God made to Noah after the flood, after all this devastation that came because God sent a flood upon the earth. God told Noah, hey, moving forward, you can trust that I'm still merciful. You can trust that even in my judgment that I still love you, that I still care for you. And so I'm actually gonna promise to you that I'll never use a flood again to wipe out humanity. And you'll remember this promise when you see rainbow, a rainbow in the sky. The rainbow is a symbol of God's mercy in the midst of his judgment. And so I think it's significant that this angel is showing up marked by the rainbow, marked by the mercy of God, even in his powerful presence. And this angel then shouted, verse three, in a loud voice, like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded their voices. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was preparing to write it. But just then I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders spoke. Do not write it down. I love this aside that John makes where as the angel begins to shout, he hears a message from heaven, the seven thunders, you know, which seems to be indicating the voice of God himself. And yet, as John's preparing to write it down, God's like, don't write that down. He's like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, of course not, you know, uh, wasn't gonna, you know. But it's, it's this moment where we recognize that even in the revelation that God has provided, there's still more that we don't understand. There's still more, there's more answers that we don't have. 
But God says, I'm going to give you, maybe you don't write down what those seven thunders spoke, but there is something else that you need to record. There is something else that you need to proclaim. Because the angel that I saw, verse 5, standing on the sea and on the land, he raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, and the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And he says, there will be no more delay. Literally, the, the time of waiting has passed. The time has come. The time has come to hear this further revelation, this further message from the Lord. He says, in the days, but in the days when, oh man, I lost my place. When the seventh angel is about to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God is completed, just as he has proclaimed to his servants the prophets. And then the voice that I had heard from the heaven began to speak to me again, saying, go and take the open scroll in the hand of the angel who's standing on the sea and on the land. The angel says, the time has come. The waiting is over. The mystery is now going to be made complete. God's going to provide clarity to these questions that as of to now, up till now, have not had answers. So go and take Take this scroll from the angel and read the revelation that it has. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, take the scroll and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. So John is told to take this revelation from the Lord and ingest it. And this isn't a foreign concept in Scripture. Other times in Scripture, God refers to his word as almost this, this bread to be eaten, right? This sustenance for us that we should be ingesting and internalizing his word, that it's sustaining, that it gives us life. And so John is told to literally take this little scroll, this tiny scroll, and to eat it. And when he eats it, it's going to be bitter, but yet it will also be sweet. And so verse 10, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and I ate it. And it did taste as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then they told me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So John and Jess, he, he takes in this revelation of the Lord, this little scroll, which is significant and distinct from, if you'll remember, uh, there was this one mighty scroll that was covered on the front and back that was sealed with seven seals. It was this plan of God's, you know, total overall purpose for creation. It was the scroll that only Jesus himself, only the, the, the slaughtered lamb could open. That scroll is separate, it's distinct from this one. This is a scroll that he uses different terminology. He literally calls it this tiny scroll. It's one that's been open for a while. And so John says that there's this, this smaller revelation that's been given to me that I'm now supposed to use to prophesy again. And now there's discussion on what exactly does that mean. Uh, but what I believe, I, I think the evidence most clearly points us towards the fact that this is John essentially setting up that he's going to go back, almost stop the clock and go back and speak more about what takes place during those trumpet judgments that we read about in chapter 8 and chapter 9. So essentially, if we were to look at this chart, this kind of timeline of events, if you'll remember, the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told the church is caught up with Christ in the clouds. That there's this first resurrection of the dead, that even the dead believers, they're, they're risen and they're brought up with Jesus Christ in heaven. And once Jesus pulls his church up and out in that rapture moment, then it begins the seven-year period of tribulation. 
That, that Daniel alluded to in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, this idea that there is a time where the Lord is going to use judgment to bring Israel back to repentance. And so those trumpet judgments that we read about are the first three and a half years of that tribulation period. And those, that time, as I said earlier, it's, it's like water's turning into blood, like the skies are being darkened, uh, there's these locusts that, that are swarming and terrorizing humanity, and it's this really dismal scene that we read just last week. And so what I think is significant is that in this moment, John is going to prophesy again, and it's going to be this zoomed in, teeny tiny scroll version of what is happening in creation, specifically in the city of Jerusalem during, those time, during that time, that time that was so bitter, and yet what John's going to reveal in chapter 11 is the sweet work of the Lord in his holy city, Jerusalem, during that exact same time period. And so there are other God-fearing, Jesus-following men and women who would make a slightly different, you know, timeline. They would, they would maybe move some of these pieces around, and that's, that's great. But, but I would argue, I, I think the evidence for us, at least at Grace Bible Church, we, we really think, okay, this seems to be that John is essentially stepping back, and he's kind of starting again. That's why it's prophesy again about these three-and-a-half-year period, and it's going to culminate at the end of the second woe, which we'll see at the end of 11. But anyway, so... He's going to be reading about, or he's going to be prophesying about what God is doing, and he's going to be talking and describing really this tension that God allows us to live in. And that first one that we saw is as he eats the word of God, it brings what? It's bitter, but it's also sweet. Because the word of God always provides us with both conviction, but also with comfort. And it's this, this tension that we live in as followers of the Lord, as, as readers and students of his scripture. It's something that I remember experiencing as a kid. Uh, when I was growing up, I grew up with two sisters, and you know, there, was, there was conflict in our home at times, and sometimes I would, I'd like step way out of bounds, right? Generally, it's like I pushed a, one of my sisters or like hit a sister or something like that. And when that would happen, many times the, the judgment that would befall, that would fall upon me, wasn't immediate. It would be a delayed sentencing because as soon as I aired, and maybe it's close to the end of the day, there were times where my mom would say, you just need to go to your room. And you're going to wait until dad gets home. I was like, oh, oh no. Right? Like that's the, now the anticipation's building and I'm, you know, making a, a ladder out of rope or, or you know, bed sheets. And I'm, I'm thinking my escape plans because I know that when my dad gets home, that then judgment's really going to befall that. I'm going to get my consequence. I'm going to receive my discipline for stepping outside of the will of mom. Right? Like that was not a great thing to look forward to. And yet, I also remember moments and when my dad would get home and it was awesome. It brought joy and, and excitement. That's one of the things that I've loved as a father of three little ones myself is those moments where you get home and it's dad's home. They run, slam into your legs and you, you know, it's, it's traumatic, but it's good, right? It's joyful. I remember our daughter when she was really little, uh, when I would get home and she was, you know, she'd be in her high chair because she was just always eating. And when I would get home, she would literally, before she really knew any other words, she would be pounding the, the, the tray on her high chair just saying, da, 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 da. I was like, yes, da, 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 I'm here. It was joy, it was excitement, it was comfort. The word of God, it provides us with incredible comfort, but there also is within the word of God conviction. There's challenge. It tells us the truth that, that we are broken, but God is good. God is good. 
but we are broken. And there's a tendency for all of us to lean towards one or the other, right? Towards that conviction or towards that comfort, to lean towards that grace or towards that truth. That's why we praise the Lord that Jesus Christ embodied both perfectly, that he came in the fullness of grace, yet also the fullness of truth. Because we need both. We really do need both. We need the Father who's going to love and provide and pat, you know, ruffle our head, but we also need the Father who's going to bring discipline and correction when necessary. We need that. And Jesus, he brought grace and truth. If we lean towards one, let's say we lean all the way towards grace, the, the, what's lacking is if I'm all grace and no truth, then I'm lacking direction for myself or for the people I'm trying to counsel. We need direction. We need correction. So all grace, no truth, it doesn't work. Same thing on the other side. If I lean towards truth and all I am is truth, 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 conviction, 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 I'm lacking motivation. If I'm all truth, no grace, I'm lacking the right motivation to live differently, to pursue God's will. Because God's not giving us command and correction as this cruel taskmaster. He's giving us this correction in this direction because he's a loving, gracious father. And so we need to recognize that this tension is in fact for our benefit. And it's a tension that we maintain as we follow and preach the word of God. This is what Paul described in the, to the church in Corinth. He says that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with clever speech, so that the cross of Christ would not become useless. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul's describing this very tension that we've been given the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we proclaim, that Jesus stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live a perfect life that none of us could live, to die the death that we all deserve, to take sin of the world upon his shoulders, to be crucified on that cross, and yet then he rose on the third day to prove his power and authority over sin and death. And he says that if you trust in me, if you call upon my name, you can be free from sin, you can be free from shame, you can be free from condemnation, you're free from that life of wrath and rebellion against the Lord, and you can be adopted into the family of the Lord Most High, because of what I've done on your behalf. And that is a message that is incredible that to us who are being saved is the power of God and yet we should not be surprised when we walk into the world and we try to proclaim this message or live out this message of hope and gospel truth that there are those around us who consider it absolute foolishness. That are absolutely just opposed. Jesus told his disciples that they should expect to be persecuted. They should expect to suffer, to be rejected, because he himself was. The word of God, it brings power and comfort to those of us who believe in the name and the power of Jesus Christ, but it also brings antagonism. It brings friction and frustration, and it appears to be foolish to those who don't believe. The Lord says, my word produces and provides, creates attention in your life. And as you move forward as preachers, proclaimers, witnesses to this truth, you're going to receive another tension. You're going to receive both persecution, but also my saving power. John describes it like this in chapter 11. He says that a measuring rod like a staff was given to me and I was told, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and the ones who worship there. But do not measure the outer courtyard of the temple. Leave it out because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. 
But I will grant my two witnesses authority to prophesy for 1,260 days dressed in sackcloth. And these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Okay, so this is another allusion to Old Testament writing. When we see this measurement of the temple, it's an allusion to this, this moment. I mean, there are other prophets who were told to measure things, but Zechariah, uh, an early prophet, was told to measure the temple in Jerusalem. And as he measured it in Zechariah 2, what it was was a demonstration of God's authority and ownership of that temple. That there were going to be other people who sought to pervert and twist the house of God to serve their own selfish purposes. But God is essentially through the measurement saying, it it still belongs to me. And it seems to be happening the same thing right here in the time of tribulation. I want you to measure the temple. There's going to be a trampling. There's going to be a desecration of my temple. But I need you to remember that I, in fact, am the one in control. That all of these events that are transpiring are only because I'm allowing them to happen. And that makes sense then that there's a second illusion as God talks about these two witnesses who are going to be prophesying for three and a half years. It says they are going to come and they are the two olive trees, the two lampstands. This is another illusion to Zechariah in Zechariah 4. We know that at that point in time, there was a high priest Joshua, there was a governor Zerubbabel, and they were described as these two olive trees and these two lampstands for the Lord, that God was working through them to exercise authority in a fallen kingdom. And so in the same way, God is saying, I'm going to raise up these two witnesses to perform mighty acts. And, and we're not going to read all the verses, but they, they're given power. They're given authority. They're proclaiming this incredible message. But because of their work and because of their word, they're persecuted and they're eventually put to death. And as they're defeated in, and they're, they're put to death after three and a half years of ministry, they lay, their corpses lay on the street for three and a half days. But, verse 11, after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood on their feet and tremendous fear seized those who were watching them. Their deaths are celebrated by the world at large that hated the message they were proclaiming, that hated the God that they represented. And so the crowd around them is terrified when these prophets are brought back, that they are resurrected by the power of God. And then the people there, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. So the two prophets went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies just stared at them. And just then a major earthquake took place and a tenth of the city collapsed and 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe has come and gone. The third is coming quickly. As John's describing these events, he's saying that the, the crowd is, is completely opposed to the work of these prophets, these two witnesses, and yet God vindicates them, that even, in the, you know, even after all that persecution, God reveals his power through these witnesses, and at the, because of the display of that power, there is fear that the crowd is terrified and is giving glory to God. So are, are they, all of them coming to faith in Jesus Christ? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe some of them uh, are. And maybe some of them are recognizing, wow, I need to turn from my ways. I need to repent. And I now know that God is real, that God is good, that he has a plan, that he is the one in control. There are others who maybe are just in, in fearfully acknowledging that, okay, maybe there's something to this. I'm not maybe ready to turn my life around and give it to Jesus Christ. But but they're at least, they cannot escape the fact that these dead men are alive and that they've been raised to heaven. 
And then John makes this note that the second woe has come and gone and the third is coming quickly. This is one of the pieces that I think points to this being the first half of that tribulation. Because as we read about those trumpet judgments, the sixth trumpet was in fact the second woe. That trumpet five was the first woe, trumpet six was the second woe. And so the seventh trumpet brings about the third woe. So I believe this is a moment where John is saying, okay, we re-round the clock. I prophesied again about this time period that seems so bitter, and yet God is doing something sweet. And now at the end of this passage, the end of the ministry of these prophets, it's going to begin what we'll read about over the next few chapters, which is the events that occur at the blowing of the seventh trumpet, at the beginning of the third woe. So John is essentially getting us back into the timeline. But he's, we cannot miss the fact that, that God has shown us his power. These two witnesses, what they are, is they are a demonstration of the reality that we, as God's witnesses, we will receive persecution, but we also will receive power. That there's vindication for those who are servants of the Lord Most High. That even though trial and tribulation is real and it's present and it's hard, that God says, I, I'm, I'm on the move, I have you. And I'm writing the end of this story there was a man by the name of Charles Lightroller, Lightroller, and he lived in the late 1800s, and he started sailing the ocean seas at the age of 13, right? That's just when you got to start. And so he goes on his first nautical voyage as a 13-year-old, and the first ship he ever sailed on, uh, they hit this big storm when they were a little bit out of port, and they lost the mast, like the main mast of their ship. It got knocked, out, knocked over. And so they had to pull into port. And when they pulled into port to fix the ship, uh, it was in a place where there was like open, like governmental rebellion and unrest, civil unrest, uh, and there was also a huge smallpox epi epidemic. But they try to fix up the ship, and they get it seaworthy, and they get back out, and immediately after they get back out into the ocean, they hit another storm. It knocks the new mast off as well, and they get, they get beached on this uninhabited island where they were marooned for nine days. So welcome to the ocean, right? Like that, that was Charles's introduction to sailing, but he didn't give up, and he kept on sailing. And Charles had just tragedy after tragedy after tragedy on the high seas. He had uh, one ship destroyed by a coal fire that broke out in the midst of the vessel. Uh, he, had, uh, he got malaria at one point, and, you know, he almost died while he's sailing on a ship. He had another ship uh, that faced a huge storm, and it just got obliterated, just like completely wrecked. Uh, it sank. They had to be rescued. And so Charles was really excited when later in his career, after all this, you know, difficulty that he gets invited, he was invited to be the second mate for the greatest ship, the largest ship ever created, the unsinkable Titanic. And so Charles accepts the role, thinking, yes, right? Heaven on earth, I've made it. And so as some of us already know, the, the Titanic actually, it sank because of Charles? Mm, I don't know. Debatable. Uh, but some say it was an iceberg. Charles was there, though. And so Charles is on the Titanic. It sinks. As it's sinking, Charles gets pinned to the deck of the Titanic. There's this incredible suction that's taking place because of all this, you know, water that's moving, the, the metal of the ship. It's so heavy, it's sinking to the bottom of the sea. And Charles is pinned to the deck. But Charles, rather than sinking to the bottom of the sea, Charles is, just happens to be on a portion of the deck where it's directly above the bo some boilers, some engine things, some boiler rooms. And these boilers exploded while the Titanic was sinking. And that explosion propelled the piece of deck that Charles was pinned to all the way back up to the surface of the sea. 
Because of course it did, because Charles has more destruction to bring to the world, right? So it blows him back to the surface. He's able to rally 30 survivors from the water. They all climb into this last lifeboat. And so 30 survivors get into this final lifeboat. Charles is actually, it's the last lifeboat to get rescued. And Charles is the last one off of the boat. And so he is the final rescued survivor of the Titanic Charles Lightoller. And then he goes on, he continues in his career. He hasn't learned his lesson yet. And he's in two more shipwrecks, like two more ships that he sails that sink in the ocean. And then, 1918, Charles decides to use his superpower of sinking every ship he touches for good. And he's in the British Navy and he takes his ship and he uses it to ram a German U-boat and sinks the German U-boat, severely damages his ship as well, but you know, par for the course, sinks the German U-boat and he receives a medal. And that's Chuck. Like that's what happened. Now, This life, Charles was not receiving persecution. He wasn't suffering because of the gospel. It's not that he was proclaiming the gospel and therefore he suffered. But there is an incredible story. We see in his life this incredible story of just, oh, just suffering and trial and tribulation and eventual vindication and this incredible kind of celebratory moment at the end. And Jesus is saying, God is saying to us that his witnesses, that we in the same way, we can expect persecution for the sake of the gospel. God doesn't say that we should just celebrate in all trial, in all tribulation, that we shouldn't shouldn't just celebrate because we're being, you know, cruel or mean or abrasive. But when we receive persecution for the sake of Christ, that's when we rejoice. When we face trials and tribulations, James tells us we can count it as all joy. Why? Because the trials are good? No, but because God uses them for good. Because God can, God never wastes the trial and the tribulation, never wastes the suffering that we experience. And so yes, we might fear the problems and persecutions of today, but we can pray for the perspective that God has promised to us, that he's not going to waste it. That as John says in another letter, that you are from God. He's speaking to believers specifically in their friction with false teachers. And he says, so you're from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who's in you is greater than the one who's in the world. He says, you don't need to be overcome with fear because you can trust that God is in you, that God is working through you, and that he's written the end of this story. And so that's why when we see our world destined for ruin, we can still rejoice knowing that God is the redeemer and the restorer of all things. That's why John closes, or this is what we see as John closes chapter 11 and verse 15. He says that the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. And then the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God threw themselves down with their faces to the ground and worshiped God with these words, saying, we give you thanks, Lord God, the all-powerful, the one who is and who was, because you've taken your great power and you've begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, but your wrath has come. And the time has come for the dead to be judged. The time has come to give to your servants, the prophets, their reward, as well as to the saints and to those who revere your name, both small and great. And the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And then the temple of God in heaven was opened and the ark of the covenant was visible within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, roaring crashes of thunder, an earthquake and a great hailstorm. John realizes that there is still hope in the midst of hardship 
That even as the temple on earth is being trampled by rebellious humanity, that God reveals to him, look, I still have this temple in heaven that is unmarked, that will never decay, that is free from all persecution. It's not under threat by any enemy. God says, I'm still in control and I'm promising to restore what is formerly broken. And yes, our world faces ruin. And yes, we should grieve that destruction. We grieve with those who grieve. We mourn with those who mourn. But we never mourn as those who have no hope. Because John tells us later in the book of Revelation, this inc- he gives us this incredible picture, not just of the destruction of our current earth, but he gives us a picture, a vision of the new heavens and the new earth in Revelation 21, where he hears from a loud voice on the throne saying, look, the residence of God is among human beings and he'll live among them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death will not exist anymore. Mourning or crying or pain for the former things have ceased to exist and the, the one seated on the throne says, look, I am making all things new. And he said to me, write it down because these words are reliable and true. John has hope. We have hope because we recognize that even in the tension, even in the difficulty, even in the tribulation, that God is promising to make all things new. That God has promised that he is at work, that he has a plan, that he has a purpose. That Jesus Christ came into the brokenness and the devastation of humanity and he brought life and he brought hope and he brought this ability for us to know the Lord and to be with him forever, not because we're able to clean up our act, not because we're able to do better, but because he has accomplished what we never could. And so this morning, we are closing in a time of worship, and we are singing one more song, declaring our dependence upon the Lord, thanking him for the fact that Jesus Jesus paid it all, that he was the atoning sacrifice, that he was the perfect lamb who came to redeem us from a situation that we could never solve on our own. That's the hope that we have. So yes, tension remains. Some of us are still struggling to to know where is that balance between the conviction of the Lord but also the comfort of God's grace. Some of us are struggling in that tension of feeling the persecution from a world that does not know us, a world that rejects us, and yet also getting to live out of the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. Some of us are experiencing and feeling that tension, seeing the tragedy and the ruin of this world, the, the, the terrible circumstances, the natural disasters, the nations in turmoil. That there is so much to grieve. And yet, there is a promised restoration that God has made. There's a promise that he's given to us that is reliable and true. So I'm not sure where we all are in that mix, but I know that the Lord has promised to use these tensions for our good, to increase our faith in him, in both the victories and in the defeats, in the joys and in the sorrows. So as we prepare to sing this final song, let's pray and ask the Lord to set our hearts and our minds on him. God, we thank you that you've given us the promise that not only will you make all things new, but that God, that you will in fact increase our faith in the here and now. That God, that you allow us, you enable us and empower us to walk faithfully through the storm, through the uncertainty. And so if you would take this moment now and ask the Lord to deepen your faith.
Maybe ask him to reveal where is it that you are, you are, are struggling to trust in his power? Is it in the tension of, of comfort and conviction? Is it, is it in the tension of persecution and his power? Is it in the tension of ruin and restoration? Ask the Lord, God, reveal to me, where is it that maybe I need, I need your power and I need your strength and I need you to increase my faith as only you can. God, show to me where that part is, where that sphere is in my life, where that need was arisen. And God, Allow me to trust you, God, move. Let your spirit transform me. Ask him for that work in your heart and in your mind right now.